Today, I'll be discussing fear propaganda with one of my favorite commentators. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. Thanksgiving turkey and the stuffing had barely settled before news exploded about a new terrifying COVID-19 variant, Omicron, a variant of concern, the headline screamed. On Monday, the entire New York Times news section above the digital fold was infected with Omicron. WHO warns of very high risk from Omicron as questions remain, one headline read. Will the vaccine stop Omicron? Scientists are racing to find out, another read. Even the opinion section was getting in on the action. Omicron is coming. The U.S. must act now, one very concerned opinionist bellowed. The governor of New York, presumably cognitively crippled by the Omicron terror, decided there was no reason to wait on insignificant details, such as how harmful or benign this new variant might be. She declared a state of emergency seconds after the new variant was named. Fear is once again on the move. And today I'm talking to Daniel Natal, host of the Daniel Natal show on The New American, and we'll be discussing fear propaganda. Daniel, thanks for coming on Freedom is the Cure, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Great to uh, talk to you again. I'm a big uh, fan, and I really do love your uh, your writing. Your prose is, is exquisite. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I did a video on this, on uh, kind of, you know, the fear, um, rule by fear. Like oh, uh, Before yeah. we go into that, I want to know, how scared are you of Omicron? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, somebody <laughs> pointed out in the co- in the comment section. It was it was really interesting. I was reading an article on it, and they were like, um, "Show me, point me to the the test. Like, what separate tests do you have for the Delta variant, the the original COVID, Omicron? Like all these different variants. They must have different tests. Oh, they don't. Interesting. <laughs> so how do you like how do you track something that you can't even test for? You don't even have a you don't even have a test for. And I mean these these things keep coming up, and they have the the, the so called PCR tests that in 2007, even the New York Times had an article, uh, I think it was entitled in 2007, it was entitled The Epidemic That Wasn't. Um, and back in 2007, so 12 years before COVID started, they had this article about how PCR testing was creating a fake impression of, of an epidemic that didn't exist because they, the PCR test, if you do anything beyond 25 cycles of magnification, it starts to get distortions and you can basically have it say anything. It becomes a magic eight ball. And the guy who invented it, Kerry Mullis, talked about that, how it shouldn't be used to, you know, in, in the way that they're using it now. And so they, they've ratcheted it up beyond 25 cycles to 45 cycles, so twice, you know, almost twice as, as high as it's supposed to go. And they're creating false positives. And they know they're creating false positives. They knew it back in 2007, the New York Times, the, the liberal New York Times <laughs> said the epidemic that wasn't because of PCR testing. So you're like, okay, so what, what are they using for the, for the new stuff? Oh, PCR testing. Whoa. <laughs> What a coincidence. Well, are you suggesting there is no Omicron var- uh, variant? I'm suggesting that they can't test for it. There is no test for it. <laughs> and so without evidence with, you know, the b- burden of proof, you know, is is on them, you know. So so once they can demonstrate the proof, once they can show a methodology that actually bears scientific scrutiny, um, wonderful. Have them do it. Have them produce, you know, isolated strains. Show us. If you're, especially if you're going to be be crafting policy, you know, around something, 
then the burden of proof is on you to prove. Oh, stop. This That has never gotten in the way of crafting policy. What, look what has happened for 20 <laughs> months. Now, I, 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 I believe there probably is an Omicron because usually these coronaviruses tend to, to spin off and create variants and whatnot. And that's that's been his, you know, how it's worked. But what gets me is, well, there's a lot of things that get me. But now uh, we want to talk about fear because we don't have almost any information about this, whether it exists or not or whatnot. But let's 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 go with the assumption that it exists um, and folks know about it and everyone's screaming it exists. We don't know how dangerous it is. Usually these these uh, the variants tend to lose their potency. Um, but we're already being told, as I said, I mean, I just went on the New York Times uh, website yesterday and I mean, it was just packed with Omicron, Omicron, Omicron. And it's not just the New York Times uh, there. Uh, for instance, uh, the Wall Street Journal, all the major newspapers. But one I just noticed in the Wall Street Journal is how Omicron variant rattled the world in one week. Listen to that. It's not even <laughs> around the world. And this is this is the kind of stuff now. As you, as you were starting to say, uh, a few weeks back, I believe it's right at the beginning of, of October, you did an episode uh, called New Fears. It's short, like your episodes tend to be, but it's crammed with interesting information. And one of the things you mentioned is was how the U.S. government approached Edward Bernays, who is a pioneer in advertising and propaganda. I don't know, maybe you'd say he's the inventor of it. And uh, they asked him, they, they wanted to work to him about reducing the public sphere of nuclear war at the time, which was which was a, a legitimate fear. Instead, what did Bernays actually suggest to the U.S. government? Yeah, Bernays, uh, God bless him, said, uh, you know, that you should do the opposite, that you should exaggerate the fears, you should ramp up the fear because a scared populace is easier to rule. And, um, you know, as, as I started to say a little bit earlier, um, this gets back to uh, the political philosopher Montesquieu back in 1720. He said that, uh, you know, monarchies are motivated by honor, that republics are motivated by virtue, but despotisms are motivated by fear. And so after World War II, 1947 on, we were on this permanent war footing where we were no longer going to be motivating the public by virtue. We were no longer going to be asking for the best and brightest of people. Instead, we were offered this model of ruling by fear, you know, a model that, that is, you know, aligned with a, a despotism, a tyranny. And, uh, you know, and that's one of the things like a republic, as an example, uh, calls for you to be conscious. A republic calls for you to be informed, informed populace, whereas in a tyranny, um, they just call for you to be scared all the time. And that's what Bernays said. Bernays said, we can't trust people to be rational. So what we're going to do is assume that everybody is irrational and we're not going to go to their conscious mind. We're going to go to their subconscious mind and we're going to have a bunch of hypnotized sleepwalking people and we're going to constantly be flooding them with with fear imagery. And um, in the in the video, one of the things that I said was when whenever you learn something new, you're using executive function, which is in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and um, this is very painful. I remember learning Spanish conjugations and, and weeping because there's like, you know, so many <laughs> conjugations for every verb. And I, it was so frustrating. And I remember my cousin one time, I was talking to her about something and she's like, oh, that hurts my brain. And, but this, this is the thing, when you use executive function, you have to consciously think of every step. And so like when you're first learning to drive, yeah. it requires a lot of calories for, for your brain because you have to think of every every little thing that you do. You know, you, you put the car in, in, in gear, you, you know, put your harness on, you, you, all, the, all the little steps, you have to consciously think about it. Later on, when you, when you, you know, learn how to drive, 
uh, it goes from your executive function back into the lizard part of your brain, which yeah. controls habit. And it becomes very easy. You don't even have to think about it. And, and they call it in, uh, in psychology, they call it chunking. When you chunk together a bunch of actions into one fluid set and you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. So what they do is when they, when they give you a new fear narrative, it hurts your brain because you have to recalibrate it. You have to rethink everything. It actually causes duress and stress. But the thing is, after a while, it goes back into the habitual part of the brain and you become less stressed. And at that point, their fear narratives become less effective. So right on cue at fixed intervals, a new fear you know narrative, whether it's a global warming, whether it's a, a virus that going to kill you all, whether, you know, the sky is falling, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the food that you're eating, the water, you're drinking, everything around you, you're, you're flooded with these fear narratives and they usually come right at fixed intervals. That, that was my, my only point. So if Omicron is, is, is real or not, you know, I mean, that, that, uh, you know, remains to be seen, but it is interesting that it's timing fits <laughs> into the, into the uh, you know, succession of, of events. So that, so it's a very, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, a betting virus that it's, you know, so willing to coordinate with the uh, politicians. Well, it's, uh, I guess it's interesting in the sense that like, we're noticing that there's lots of pushback. Uh, people are not afraid. And, you know, it's hard to tell uh, to, to say what the national pulse is, what the national feeling is as far as or sentiment, uh, because there's so many sections. Americans are so different. And of course, we're now we're so polarized. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to say that I it, it seems like and I think there is there re, there's reason to believe that this is uh, this is happening is that there's a large portion, an ever larger portion of people who are awakening, uh, who are not afraid, who are sick of being afraid. Uh, who are just sick of being afraid. And, and like you said, it's interesting that all of a sudden, you know, now we have a, a, a new variant. Uh, now, a definition of fear propaganda that I managed to dig up within uh, 10 seconds on the Internet, and it seems like it's, it's very uh, applicable, right, is this. The idea is to present a dreaded circumstance and usually follow it up with the kind of behavior needed to avoid that horrible event. I mean, if that doesn't fit what we've been going through for, for 20, 20 months, I don't know. Um, I don't know what else does. Uh, you know, you mentioned also in your in your videos, Walter Lippmann, how he wrote, was it nearly 100 years ago, uh, yeah. that the first time in history we have a new form of government. And he says it's technocracy and the way I don't know if you define it this way or if he did it, but was that. Technocracy is, is where people are not called to exercise logic or reason, but to be manipulated by their unconscious impulses. Uh, there's a lot to choose from, but I'm going to ask you, it's like, what are some of the largest indicators to you today that people have lost the ability to, to reason and to think? Well, I mean, everything around us is, uh, is kind of geared toward uh, fostering irrational you know, impulse driven behavior. And we're told from our political leaders, you know, this is good for the economy, you know, uh, go out and buy like George Bush, as, as I said before, um, you know, after 9-11 telling people, you know, that the best thing they could do as citizens was to go out shopping, you know, so everything is is about buying things, you're, you're being flooded with marketing, you know, from from the, the highest political levels to your schools. I mean, look at look at the schools right now as as a de facto vaccine salesman. You know, everything is money. I mean, there, there, I narrated a, a book, an audio book for Alex Newman, and um, it was The Crimes of the Educators. And I was, I was shocked at some of the material in there. One of the things in the 1990s, the schools, they had something called death education. 
and um, they, they were basically depressing kids, purposely depressing them. They would have the kids write their own obituaries. They would have as their vocabulary words, things like cadaver, corpse, death, mausoleum. They would take them on field trips to medical examiner's offices, morgues and, and cemeteries. And then when the kids, when a certain subset of the kids became depressed or started thinking you know, su suicidal thoughts, um, they would send them down to the office and they had kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies. And they were telling the kids, oh, if you're depressed, go to this website, buy Pfizer. And you, you realize very quickly, they were creating a market for drugs, for antidepressants, and the schools were getting kickbacks to do this. So, you know, all of us, you know, as I said, from the political level to the, to the educational level, uh, you know, everything around us is, is just marketing constantly. You turn on the TV, social media, nobody is called upon to, to engage in rational thought. Look, look at television shows. They're like, oh, the coveted 18 to 34 year old demographic. We want the coveted 18. But then you ask, well, why? Why that demographic? And they say, because they're the youngest people who have disposable money, but don't have critical thinking faculties because the brain isn't done wiring yet, right? Uh, for, the, for the most part. Um, Mark Penn talks about that in the book, Microtrend Squared. He talks about, and he's a Democrat. He ran Hillary Clinton's campaign and he's a pollster. And he has this chapter where he talks about um, that Democrats basically are the young people who don't have impulse control. Groups, demographics that don't have impulse control because their brains aren't formed for whatever reason. And he said that Democrats hemorrhage voters as they grow up. He said past the age of 25, when the brain is done wiring, they usually become conservative because now they have long-term thinking. But when it's short-term impulse control thinking, then you're, you're a tool, you're a sucker, you're, you're somebody they can manipulate. Like Kamala Harris saying, oh, we want 16 year olds to vote. And then she's on camera a couple of days later saying, oh, well, we know what, you know, what we know about 21 year olds is they're stupid. Okay, well, how about 16 year olds that you just wanted voting, <laughs> you know? And it, 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 it's, it's, very, it, it's very obvious that we're in a system now that does not want you to engage in critical thinking. It's not taught in schools anymore. Um, you know, they've taken ethics out, they've taken philosophy out, they've taken history out, they've taken all these things out and they've replaced them with sex ed. They've replaced them with sniffing glue or gluing macaroni to a piece of construction paper, you know, and it's, it's, it's a, you, you can see the rot in the political system that's a, a, a function of the decline in the educational caliber of the society. Have you by any chance read Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, book, The Real Anthony Fauci? Have no. you? Okay. No, I haven't. I love I love Robert Kennedy Jr. though. He does great work. So he presents a very compelling case for for all these connections between big pharma, the politicians, the CDC, uh, the FDA. Now, I think, you know, going back to your your idea about critical thinking is how come nobody questions or why is there not why is there not this huge uproar, you know? All they keep saying, the answer to everything is what? What's the answer to everything? Whenever there's a variant, whatever Government. it is, it's vaccines, right? It, it's, it's all it's vaccines, it's masks, it's lockdowns. But nobody ever talks about there's there's not even a protocol as far as I know. And this is presented in, in Kennedy's book there. The government has even come up with a, a protocol for early treatment. I would think that at some point, if we if there enough people were able to critically think they would say it's like, well, what about other options? You know, not everyone can get the vaccine or how come there's no conversation about natural immunity? Um, there's been reports that even just in 2020, when this whole thing, you know, when it was ramping up as 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 much as one third of Americans already had COVID-19. 
And I think that's a testament to the fact that we have lost. We we have lost our ability to think critically because uh, you would think that if this is a of HHS, yeah, Health and Human Services, if the government really gave a crap about you, they would have as many as many ways, as many antidotes uh, as possible, as many remedies as possible. But they just keep plugging this freaking vaccine. And you, you got to ask why? Why? So, you know, uh, we bono. Who, who benefits, right? And right. Look, the CDC holds patents on vaccines, so money on it. So they have an interested motive. So this is classic conflict of interest. This is textbook conflict of interest. You don't act like an impartial, uh, an impartial arbiter. Like if, if you're the judge in the case, right? If you're a, a judge in a, in, a, in a criminal trial and you find out that the judge is in business with the person mm -hmm. on the other side, right, right. he would have to recuse himself. So how do we have the CDC that is benefiting, that's making billions and billions and billions of dollars off of vaccine sales? And we're, and we're acting like they're this impartial organization when they're not. Like Robert Kennedy Jr. makes that point, that they're, they're vaccine salesmen. You know, this, and, and right. so for the, for the guy with the hammer, every problem is a nail. You know, for the person who makes money off vaccines, vaccines are the solution to everything because they make money off it. You know, you explain how, how fear debilitates it seems to me what I got from it is that um, when we process new fears, what it does is it expands our energy, right? Our thinking uh, energy. So now that we're expanding energy there, uh, we perhaps have less energy to expand on on the on critical thinking, on saying it's on thinking other ways about this. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, let me pause for a moment. Let me calm and, and see what's really going on here before just running, running scared. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are, are doing that and they're not not asking the, the right questions. The most interesting part of the episode was where you explain why someone who wants to control with fear would need to introduce fear. Uh, and, and so do you believe that we're in some sort of uh, that we're being you know, there's there's a lot that's working to control the world, America, that the, yeah, measure, well, the, the, the measures they're taking are not justifiable. And I think later we can go into easy stats that we already know, considering uh, the mortality rate is 1% or yeah, less. Yeah. And, and uh, but yeah, just to get back to your, your point. Um, yeah, this it's, it's always been this case. I mean, you know, Edmund Burke talked about this, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. This is human nature. We, we saw this happen in the Roman empire. We saw this happen in ancient Greece and Persia. You know, I mean, men always are going to abuse government because it's it's a it's a, an, a wealth extraction mechanism. Get rich while not working, and that's very attractive to a certain subset of sociopaths who tend to go into into uh, you know these organizations, and um, and it's our job as citizens to try to do everything that we can to stop them. Um, but yeah, just to get back to to another thing, I, I, I saw this uh, podcast uh, with a, a clinical psychologist from the uh, University of Ghent. Um, and his name was Mattia Demay, I think his name was. And he talked about, um, he, 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 as a clinical psychologist, he was talking about something called mass formation. Um, and he was, basically, this is like the, the creation of a mob, of like a mass identity, mass psychology, right? And he says that there has to be four conditions for this to happen. And he said that the, the COVID phenomenon was just remarkable because it, it, it just fed into this. It was textbook. And he said that um, step one, uh, you know, one of the, the factors that has to, be, has to be in place is the fact that you have to have a society that lacks social bonds, you know, no social connections for large numbers of people. He said, step two is that you have to have a lot of people who lack meaning, right? Like they're decoupled from religion or spirituality or philosophy, anything deeper than just consuming, than, you know, buying products. Step three is you have to have lots of people who experience free floating anxiety, 
and free-floating anxiety would be, um, you know, you see all these kids who, who, oh, I have anxiety medication. Oh, I have, you know, like, and, and they're all like medicated like senior citizens when they're like 13, you know, for, for anxiety disorders. And so free-floating anxiety, like if you knew that you were scared of say a spider, right? Um, that spider is attached to your fear. So you know, okay, I can kill the spider. Or I could avoid spiders and I'm not scared. But if you have free-floating anxiety, you're, you're kind of scared of everything because you can't, you can't fight it. How can you fight like a, a ghost, a, a, a specter that's around mm -hmm. you? Um, and so the, and the last thing is free floating aggression. Like if you, you have a society that doesn't have like a stated enemy, like in World War II, World War I, the enemies were outfits, wore uniforms saying, we are the enemy, we are officially declaring war. And, it, and you, could, you could see them, you could deal with them, you could confront them, you could, you, you could overcome your fears, your challenges, right? Because it was, it was manifest. Um, it was palpable, right? So if you have a society where there's free-floating anxiety, uh, no, no discernible enemy, right? He said, so in those conditions, um, nefarious forces can give you an object, can give you a totem, can say, okay, well, this virus is the new enemy. And now, you know, and so now they, they have a sense of meaning. They have a sense of community. Yeah. Just put your mask on. And he even yeah. said that. He said that um, the masks as well, and, and you've heard this from numerous, numerous people, like the, the president of, or prime minister of Austria or whatever, once that he was confronted with the fact that masks don't work for what you, you know, what you claim they, you know, you want people to wear them for. And he said, oh, well, they're just a symbol, you know? And so he, he there was a moment of candor, a moment of honesty. And, um, so anyway, so Demay said that, yeah, the masks, he said, as absurd as it is, he said, the absurd, the more the absurd, the better, because now you have a symbol, you have, you have like something you can wear, kind of like the Nazis with an arm patch, and it makes them feel like part of a visible group, you know? And so, I mean, this has been very skillfully psychologically done to feed into those, those lost souls, those people who don't have a religion. And now this is their religion who don't have a community. Now this is their community. <laughs> so, so it's no, it's, it sounds like it's no accident that the mask crusaders, the vaccine cru uh, crusaders, the moths, the, the vaccine mob is usually correlated with the left, which also happens to be the, I would pretty sure this is true, uh, is, is the demographic that is less religious. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, they're also the mob demographic too. I mean, like historically, it's usually the left. It's not the right that, that typically, you know, has mob psychology. It's almost always the left. And even people will say, oh, the one exception is Nazi Germany. The Nazi Germans were socialists. They were men of the left. <laughs> they, they were not, you know, they, these were not conservatives. These were not small, limited government, you know, conservatives. You know, here at the John Birch Society, we have a video where we explain the political spectrum. And, and it makes, it obviously makes more sense. On the very, very, very left, you have, you know, ultimate totalitarianism, communism. And, and you know, and fascism is right there next to it because in essence, fascism is, is the corporate, uh, you know, the corporations working with the government, government usually manipulates them and they do and whatnot. And so it never made sense to me on how fascism is on the right, considering on the right, you have total anarchy and then you have smaller government as you move up, uh, you know, but that's that's more propaganda. It's a different kind of propaganda. It's We're uh, equating uh, Hitler with nationalism when Hitler was not a nationalist. You know, Hitler, Hitler was an Austrian who went as an immigrant into Germany. If he was a nationalist, he would have stayed in Austria. <laughs> he would have stayed in his own nation. Yeah. And, and even after going into Germany, I think he only got German citizenship when he was 40 years old or, or thereabouts. And um, even when he went in there, he never said, oh, I'm here for the German nation. No, he said, I'm here for the German empire, the Reich. He went in 
from day one saying, oh, we're going to conquer this. We're going to conquer this. We're going to conquer this. We're going to be like Great Britain. Great Britain was their model. So he was an imperialist. He was not a mm. nationalist. George Washington was a nationalist. George Washington was not trying to conquer Brazil. George Washington was not trying to conquer China. Right. That's you know? a good point. Whereas Hitler was he, he was an, he was the immigrant leader and an imperialist. <laughs> I mean, you know, so this was and, and he was a socialist. This was not a man of the, this was not anybody who bore any resemblance to George Washington or, or any of these like nationalists in these, uh, these smaller like movements, you know, like nationalists typically want to build walls. You know, they want to restrict their, their land size. Whereas like imperialists want to tear those walls down. Hitler never went and saying, oh, let's build a wall around Germany. No, Hitler went and saying, let's tear down the Maginot wall and go into France. I'm yeah. all about tearing down walls because because it makes the Panzer tanks it makes it easier for our tanks to get into your country, right? He was never there. There is no wall that Germany built around itself. So this bizarre conflation of George Washington with with Adolf Hitler has just been one of the most bizarre, you know, things that I've ever seen come out of the left. What are some of the the propaganda uh, fear propaganda schemes of of the Third Reich of of Hitler's uh, party there? Well, I mean. I mean, there's so many, but you have you have to distinguish, though, between like you said earlier, uh, you were talking about atomic war and that was one of the, the fear narratives. Right. And whether it was played up or not, Bernays said, let's play it up. So, you know, it was probably more exaggerated than it actually was as a threat. Um, I remember as a kid, you know, you and I are probably within the same ballpark and age, you know, growing up. And that was our fear thing. They had the day after or they had Red Dawn. You know, they had all these all these kind of, you know, things, these, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove, all these movies about possible atomic war. We had songs, 99 Red Balloons about an atomic war. You yeah. Know? Um, so we were that was what we were flooded in. That was our COVID. Um, and so, yeah. So at that time period. But as you said that was a legitimate fear, even though it was played up, but it was still a, a real possibility, you know? Um, so Germany after World War I was destroyed. It was, yeah. it was, it was a mess. And even the allies who did it um, knew, like they looked at the Versailles Treaty and they said, this is unjust. You know, I mean, Woodrow Wilson and, and like all these uh, Winston Churchill, all these people, they were like, uh, and that's why Neville Chamberlain allowed Hitler to do what he did and tear up the Versailles Treaty, because he had said before Hitler even tore it up, uh, he should tear it up because <laughs> they, they knew how unjust it was. So a lot of the things that Hitler played upon were not paranoid fears. You know, like I said earlier, um, that Germany is is geographically surrounded by you know people who want they're like like the french always wanted the alsace region because it had coal and it had factories there was a lot of factory production it was a very wealthy you know region and so the ethnic population were german there were people with names like hans and dieter and johan and mm. you know um and the French kept, you know, there were wars back and forth for, you know, a long time for centuries, you know, who's going to control this region. And when the Germans built up that region into an industrial behemoth, the French, you know, came in, they got it through the Treaty of Versailles. They told all the Germans living there, okay, Johan, now you're French. And, you know, Johan, you know, was like, you know, confused because he didn't speak French, but now was issued a French passport, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so there were, there were real fears in the air that were not uh hitler driven and that, that i think that's one of the one of the things that we have to be honest about is that when you're facing economic collapse you know through through hyperinflation that's yeah. a real fear that's not something hitler made up when you're facing you know england trying to collapse you or germany trying to invade you that's not made up you know but um, he, whether... he made the, he made the jews in a way he made them the scapegoat and this i think justified I think there's a parallel between the fact that then the German people 
they became okay or to some degree with, you know, putting stars on these people because the way they were painted was that, but he was saying that they're responsible. I don't know how, to what degree he was saying that they were responsible, but the people basically understood that the Jews were responsible or partly responsible for, for their lack of prosperity, for inflation and whatnot. And I think that led, based on what I know is then that, that justified in people's mind that, you know, the segregation from society, you know, why these people got to walk around with stars. They were, and I think there's a parallel between that and what is happening now with the unvaccinated, right? Because what do you hear? It's a, it's a pandemic of the unvaxxed, you know, our, our patience is wearing thin, even though that's know? not true. All the people getting sick are the vaccinated, but go, go well, uh, this breakthrough thing. It's it, 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 that's becoming more obvious too. you know, they try to hide it for months and now it's becoming, you know, mainstream news because you just can't, but isn't that that's, that's actually pretty scary. You know, you, we're going to talk about some actual scary stuff that is happening. And that's, you know, we're talking about an authoritarian regime now, an authoritarian presidency. I, I don't think there's any doubt. I think anyone with critical abilities can see that what is scary is how authoritarian the U.S. government has become over a disease with a mortality rate of less than one percent. They have decimated the world economy. Uh, they have used it to justify to close houses of worship, to shutter thousands just in America, thousands and thousands of businesses that were most many which will never come back. And not to mention there's reports galore about how it's increased substance abuse. It has increased depression. It has increased suicide rates. And yet, yet we still act like this is the most terrifying thing going on. If that's not if that's not successful propaganda, man, Daniel, I don't know what is. Well, yeah, successful propaganda is anything that directs your attention away from the real thing, the real root cause of something. I mean, our whole medical industry is about not addressing root causes of illness, but just like treating the symptoms and yeah, never yeah. address it because you make more money that way. And, and so, you know, so the root cause of what's happening right now why people should legitimately be upset and worried is the, the drop of their standard of living. So, so COVID becomes a convenient propaganda mask, kind of like what you said earlier with, with uh, Mr. Hitler and Jews. Um, it goes back to mass formation. If you can find, if, if, if people have a vague anxiety and you can give them a totem, and say, oh, you're ang anxious because of this. And you give them a pinata and tell them to hit that pinata, you know? Yeah. And meanwhile, it wasn't the pinata that robbed them, it was you. Humans have been doing this as long as humans, I mean, little kids do that. They run past a table, they hit the table, you know, they, they their leg on the table, they're like, ouch. And then they hit the table as if the table, <laughs> you know, um, you externalize, you know, your own responsibility. And, um, and that's what we're watching. I mean, on, on a large scale, and it's been extremely successful because we have that population that hasn't been trained in critical thinking. We have a population that doesn't really know what the function of government is. You know, like if you read philosophy, um, Aristotle says that, that different governments have different end goals. You know, the, the end goal of an oligarchy is the transfer of the wealth from the many to the few. The end goal of a democracy is equality. The end goal of a republic is virtue. The promotion of virtue among the people. So if you know what the function of it of it is, of the machine is, then you know if it's doing its job correctly. Like if you know that the function, the end goal of a refrigerator food cold, then you're going to say, hey, the refrigerator is not keeping my food cold. I have a yeah. benchmark. I can judge it. But if people don't know what the government is even there for, then all of a sudden they think, okay, what's the end goal of a government? A, a hospital, I think they're supposed to be doing health care. No. That's the end goal of a hospital. We're, the government is not supposed to be no, in the healthcare business. It's, it's totally so, different tellers. It's it's totally amazing 
uh, how many people don't know that, you know, the goal the, is to protect our unalienable rights. You know, uh, they, it's right there in the Declaration of Independence. Like you said, it's like it's not to give us uh, universal health care. That's the market. We leave that to, yeah, the, exactly. the, to the market. Uh, but because people don't understand that, I think it explains why so many millions, I would say millions, I don't know, maybe half of America can look at what's happening and not see how authoritarian and how concerning this is, because one day they'll be coming for you and they don't understand that either. And and, and that I kind of want to segue into why the idea of, for instance, the te uh, the deep state seems to something so ludicrous. We, we mentioned Hitler and that's just one tyrant in history. You know, there's there's been tons. And so but now we seem to be at a point where a great segment of the population believes that this is not possible, that there's no way a small group of people can exist who want to exert complete power and control that's incredible, considering that you pick up almost any historical textbook, and that's exactly what has happened. Um, it, it's only yeah. been, say, I don't know, for the last 200, 250 years that we've discussed that we've uh, that the world and especially America has had a small glimmer of time where uh, people have actually got to tell somewhat the government what to do and not vice versa. It, it, it just boggles my mind that we can uh, ignore that. And all of a sudden we can say, well, despite thousands and thousands of years of tyranny, of, of feudalism, of monarchy, of, of, of every tyrannical system, um, that's all that is ruled. This time is different. I don't know how, how that could be because we haven't changed. There's nothing to suggest that people have become so much better. So, much, uh, you know, I think it's quite the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. A, a republic demands action. Like uh, John Stuart Mill said that in considerations on representative government, he says that a tyranny requires a passive population, right? So the tyrant just wants you to pay attention. It usually promotes vices, according to Aristotle, right? He'll he wants you distracted. He wants you materialistic. He wants you uh, com uh, yeah, obsessed with the senses, right? Like low, low level things so that you're distracted so that he can rule and, and rob the place and everything. Um, so they want you passive. And so John Stuart Mill says that. He says it is in the interests of, of, a, of a tyrant to have a low level of intelligence and a low level of education. Um, and so he says in, in that book very, very uh, articulately, he talks about, okay, what is an active population? What is a passive population? So he says in an active population, like a republic requires, say for instance, an, uh, like uh, somebody sees a mugging and he uses this example. He says, in France, someone would see somebody being mugged and they'd cross over to the other side of the street and say, oh, it's the police's job. And they would just let it go on. He said, in a republic, you're called on to stop it. You're, you, you are a de facto you know, deputy, right? And because of this, because every citizen is a de facto deputy, you don't need a large police force because the citizens are the police force. They can do a citizen's arrest or whatever. They stop you know, evil as they see it happening. So you have a very small police force. You, so you don't have a police state. He said, in a passive society where nobody helps the police, then suddenly you need vastly more police to keep, to keep order because nobody's helping. And we're watching that now. And he said also in an active society, he said that um, the people, if they see a problem with themselves, they'll say, oh, I, I should change that. They're, I'm fat. I should diet. A pass, in a passive society, he said, if you see a problem with yourself, you blame someone else. Mm -hmm. You have grievance culture. Oh, I failed because yeah. men made me fail. Or I failed because white people made, you know, you're, you're blaming. That's, that's a hallmark of a passive person. And so if you notice the political left, they're always training people to be passive. They're always training people not to have power that someone else has the power. You're just, you're just a victim, you know, that there, that's the training for a passive population, which is preparatory to a tyranny, right? Well, you it gives them, them power. 
the irony is it gives them power. Yeah, but it but but by siphoning it away from from mm. the general public, you know, because and this is also why they, they were so infuriated by Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse was an example of the Republic. He was an example of somebody like an active citizen, you know, protecting property in a Republic. They don't want that. They want mm. the attitude. Oh, it's the police's job that that is classic textbook training for do, a passive do, population. Do they want that that subway full of people watching the guy rape the lady? That I, was. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I knew that that was in Philadelphia, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, these there was there was a very famous case, uh, Kitty Genovese, and they used this. It was in 1962 and there were 38 witnesses um, to her being raped, much like the, the Philadelphia case that just happened. Thirty eight people. And um, it's used as a classic in, in psychology textbooks and stuff like that of the apathy, you know, the, as a society slides from an ethical active populace into an unethical uh, John Stuart Mill, he calls them morally stunted, that passive people are morally stunted, they will not stop somebody hurting a child, they will not stop somebody raping a woman. And so Kitty Genovese was was stabbed by a, a lunatic, he didn't even know her. He, he left the house, he said that day with a knife saying that I was going to look for somebody to kill just because the knife wanted me to kill. This was like a schizophrenic, psychotic you know, wow. person. He grabs this you know, attractive young woman, butchers her. 38 people witnessed, not a single person. Not only did they not help, not one person even called the police. And so the, the, the main detective was in there and he was like, I know that I know that there's no law forcing them to call the police, but in, in the safety of their homes, they're looking from a window. They're not in any danger. Why wouldn't they have, don't they have a moral obligation? And that's the thing. They had been trained to be morally stunted, you know, by being, by dint of being passive, a passive population. And that's what we're seeing. We're, we're, these are the fruits. This is what they've, you know, they've sowed and, and now we're reaping, you know, the, the violence and the, and the decay. So. I think people are realizing that now. And, and those who, who don't go along with that, who aren't passive, who are seeing through it, uh, again, I said earlier, there's awakening, and I think this awakening is on, on many fronts. There's many facets to to this awakening. You know, while, while what we've been talking about seems a little depressing, um, I want to kind of finish up with the, the awakening that's happening and what we're seeing as a result of it. You know, we have various states now. Uh, they're, they're, they're growing who are defying these mandates uh, who are defying uh, who are defying our authoritarian uh, regime. People are, are speaking out. They're speaking out about now that uh, they're not afraid to be called conspiracy theorists in a sense anymore. They're, they're speaking out about the, the shadow government. They're also speaking out about uh, early treatment. Uh, they're showing up, for instance, parents are showing up uh, to school boards. This is huge, right? Uh, they're showing up being and, and active. being active. Yeah. And they're, you know, some of them are screaming. Uh, we don't endorse violence. We don't even endorse screaming, really. <laughs> and we haven't even seen any violence either, but go ahead. No, right. <laughs> I haven't no, seen any. <laughs> no, no, they're they're done being uh, passive. Oh, we have become passive, you know, over the decades. We've become consumers. We've become uh, obsessed with entertainment, uh, and and that has become. I would think that has increased uh, exponentially, given that now we have, you know, the meme with the with the phone, the the cell phone, kind of like an octopus on someone's face. I th I think that's so. Uh, such a good illustration. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to go into what we suggest as far as action. But what do you suggest? I mean, it sounds like I would think what opened up my mind, and I think you would agree, is reading. Exactly. Uh, but reading is, is amazing. 
and I encourage my son, you know, he's 10 and we always, and, and then once he reads something, I ask him about themes and, and, and whatnot. And even when he says certain things, I ask him, well, why do you believe that? Even though most of the things he says are exactly what we believe because we've thought of those things, but I want him to know. Uh, what do you suggest people do to get active? Well, I mean, exactly what they don't want us to do, which is why they're trying to, you know, disrupt cultural transmission. They're trying to get rid of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare. And, you know, they're trying to get rid of all that because those things open your mind. It's a, it's a drug that suddenly wakes you up because it teaches you critical thinking. It teaches you how to have empathy, you know, how to, how to, how to see the world from different points of view, different perspectives. And, um, but one of the things, one of the steps forward, and I think we're, we're kind of, maybe we've turned a corner in a sense. Uh, conservatives who've also been very complacent for a long time because of post-World War II prosperity, you know, no wars and peaceful enemies and, you know, or excuse me, peaceful neighbors and, and oceans protecting us from enemies. Um, and, and they got very complacent. Um, not the John Birch Society, of course, because they were the ones sounding the alarm, you know, uh, well before this happened. So everybody owes the John Birch Society like, a, you know, uh, an apology, the ones who, who said that they were, you know, oh, paranoid back in the, in the 50s. But um, yeah, well, uh, I think we may have turned a corner because I was reading this article on Zero Hedge and uh, a person was talking about the, the current health global lockdowns and all this kind of stuff. And he said that he noticed that three groups of people were the only ones who kind of saw the lies straight out. And he said one of them were constitutionalists. The other were Christians. And he said the third were people who have suffered abuse by gaslighting who have suffered like, you know, abuse. And so when you look at somebody who's trying to keep you in fear, keep you mentally, psychologically dislocated, lying to you constantly, changing definitions in dictionaries, you know, this is gaslighting. These are classic gaslighting techniques. And so people who have suffered before, there was a, a doctor, uh, Kenneth Ring, Dr. Kenneth Ring uh, noticed that. He's, he noticed that people who have endured trauma when they were young, they can avoid what's called consensus reality, right? And so people are manipulated through consensus reality in the sense, like they've done psychological, uh, you know, kind of skits, you know, studies where they'll, people will enter a, uh, an elevator and actors will be turned the opposite way. And so the normal person who isn't an actor, he goes in, he sees everybody turn the opposite way. And all of a sudden for a while, he's like, oh, th this is not normal, but then he'll conform and he'll turn irrationally the other way. They'll do the same thing with balls. Like if you see a blue ball and enough people say, oh, it's a red ball and you know, it's blue, you'll suddenly start calling it red. You, you, you start second guessing yourself and say, oh, maybe I'm colorblind. Maybe, I, you know, so that idea of consensus reality is used to manipulate us. So people who've endured trauma and gaslighting and can recognize it they basically become immune to it and they start to recognize it. They start to recognize a government that is using these techniques you know, of an, of an abuser, right? And so they start waking up. So right now the political right has taken a beating, but I think because of that, I think that that's purgative. I think that that's actually beneficial because now they're starting to recognize the techniques. Now they're starting to become immune. They're starting to notice the patterns of gaslighting. And only after that point, can you like, once you recognize what's happening, then you can deal with it. But until, you know, if, if you're just free floating, if you're just going through like a sleep or hypnotized, you can't ever solve that problem. But now because of that trauma and people recognizing the gaslighting, I think that there's, you know, room now for us to start healing and, and start taking action. They're recognizing what's really the concern and that's tyranny. I know that FDR was no model of, of liberty for some, but can you imagine Joe Biden saying there's there's nothing to fear but fear itself? We haven't heard that. We haven't. We hardly ever hear. It's exactly. like uh, I, I would give 
Joe Biden some credit because he says it's of concern, but not to panic. I'm actually surprised in the way that he said that. Of course, Fauci is is doing the opposite. Uh, he's saying essentially, we need to do everything possible uh, to to yeah, warn this thing of yeah yeah fire yeah, in so, a crowded theater, fire yeah, in a crowded yeah. theater, and all the because yeah, so so Biden doesn't have to do that because his surrogates are yeah. are classically you know going around and uh, and giving the party line, so it is it is uh, a little concerning. <laughs> yeah, but we 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 encourage and we'll wrap it up here, Daniel. Thank you so much, man. Uh, one thing that we encourage folks is we definitely encourage you to get in the fight for freedom. We're talking about uh, getting uh, active in, in good old fashioned electorate activism. It, it has worked. I did a recent episode with Robert Owens not too long ago, and I asked him, I was like, Robert, does activism still work? Because I think there's a lot of folks and they're really down and they're saying, what's the point? The point is that it is working. We're, we're seeing it. We're seeing it work. It's it's not that the instant results that we're, we'd like to get that we're perhaps used to getting, but it's working. And so one of the ways we suggest that you do that is that you join an activism organization. Uh, and of course, we're kind of uh, biased. So we, we recommend us, the John Birch Society. We have 62 years in the trenches. And as Daniel mentioned, uh, we've been warning that this was coming. Uh, this, is, this did not happen overnight. Uh, the fact that so many are okay with what's happening is a testament to what has been happening for, say, for, for decades in the educational realm and, and various other aspects of our society. We've been warning that this is happening, but we also, like I said, we have 62 years in the trenches. We have chapters all over the country, and we know what's happening. We know, you know who's behind this and whatnot. So we ask you to go to jbs.org. Find out more about the JBS. And if you haven't already, you can get in touch with a coordinator to learn more about joining. Uh, we got links in the feed below. So, Daniel, I want to thank you so much, man, for, for joining me and sharing uh, your wealth of knowledge. You're awesome, man. And yeah, well, uh, thank you, man, for, for having me. Oh, and, and you asked before, you know, what can people read to kind of open their minds? Yeah, read classic literature, read philosophy, read books on ethics, but also read the New American Magazine, which is there also put out by the John Birch Society. And they have a great new uh, Trump world issue. And uh, yes. you know, check that out. So. Absolutely. And watch Daniel's show. He's over there on the new American. Yeah, there you go. So, okay. <laughs> thanks, so thanks again, Daniel. And thank you everyone for listening. Are you concerned with where America is headed? If not, you should be. So let's get busy on solutions at the John Birch society. Our staff and members have over 60 years of experience in pushing back on outrageous abuses of government. Our tools are truth and education. Our methods are tried and true with scores of successful operations. Join together with the tens of thousands of members of the John Birch Society nationwide to make a difference. We have professional staff strategically placed all over the nation and will provide the training you need to be a success. We will provide the materials you need to be a success. We will provide the esprit de corps that comes with working in concert with tens of thousands of members nationwide on the same goals. If you want to bellyache and do nothing, don't join because we don't want you. But if you're a patriot and you love our country and want to preserve the blessings of liberty to the next generation, then we need you in the fight today. Not soon, today. Let me clarify, today. Go to jbs.org and get involved right now. And remember, the Constitution is the solution.